Well, thanks for listening to a podcast. I'm Allison Morrow. This is the podcast that focuses on the southern resident killer whales, J-Pod, K-Pod, and L-Pod. Today, our guest is Senator Kevin Ranker, who is one of the task force members. This is the task force that Governor Inslee put in motion to take some pretty significant action to save the southern resident killer whales from extinction. They're now down to 74 whales after losing J-50 the uh, calf last week. Senator Ranker, this morning you sent a letter to the task force. You mind kind of telling us what that said? Yeah, well, just uh, back up for a sec. So the, the task force has these subcommittees uh, made up of real experts in different areas, everything from vessel traffic to salmon issues and restoration to other uh, different areas that we're focused on. And so the subgroups have come back with uh, draft recommendations for the full task force to consider. And the biggest thing that they were trying to get in front of us was their recommendations on what should be dealt with in the first year and the second year of the task force's efforts, uh, recognizing that we've been stood up for two years. And so my letter, uh, after reviewing in detail the 48 pages of, of documents that we received with my staff, I was going through uh, what I believe uh, are the actions that the full task force must consider immediately. And and by immediately, that means that those recommendations will be sent to the governor and to the legislature for immediate action. And so some of the individual uh, actions that were recommended by the subcommittees, I fully support. And some of them, I believe, need to be prioritized at a higher level. So the clock is ticking on this. And as per your letter, what do you feel like should be prioritized that you feel like is not? Well, the first uh, issue that I raise in my letter to the full task force is the issue of oil spills. So what we know is that oil traffic over our Salish Sea waters has changed dramatically over the last seven to ten years. It used to be that all of our oil came in from tankers from Alaska and a little bit came in through a pipeline. Now what happens is significant oil, uh, over 35-40% is coming in through the pipeline. We also have oil trains coming through our communities, which we've all seen and had concerns about over the last few years. None of that existed the way it does now, uh, even five years ago. The other thing on the water, however, is, oh, and, and so the, the, the pipeline and, and the trains are bringing in different oil. They're bringing in tar sands oil, which is much heavier uh, and in many cases more combustible as well. Um, but this oil is now being transferred over our water by not just tankers, but also oil barges and these things called ATBs, articulated tug barges, which is kind of a big tug permanently stuck into the back of a, a big barge. The reason this is an issue is because these barges used to carry a few hundred thousand gallons of oil, and they go from Anacortes or Bellingham down to Seattle. Now they're carrying millions and millions of gallons of oil, and they're going out the Straits of Juan de Fuca, and in some cases all the way down to Long Beach. And they're carrying a thicker, heavier oil that we have not had to clean up before, and we do not know how to necessarily clean up because it sinks. And these barges don't have the protections that our tankers have for years. And in fact, the first legislation I ever passed as a state senator nine years ago required even stricter protections for our tankers coming in and created a, a tug escort, I mean a, a rescue tug, out at the tip of the Straits of Juan de Fuca at Nia Bay, which many of your listeners have probably heard about in the past. It's responded hundreds of times to vessels that have lost power. Um, 
And so tankers coming in have this rescue tug out there. They're also required to have tug escorts as soon as they enter the Puget Sound. So once they're in our inland waters, there's a tug on either side of the boat in case there's a problem. These barges don't have any of that. And again, now they're carrying millions of gallons of oil. And so one of the recommendations that I put forward um, and that many in the task force are very concerned about is that we start dealing with these barges the same way we do with tankers, which is they should have rescue tug, uh, we should have uh, tug escorts for them in the eastern straits of Juan de Fuca. So somewhere based somewhere in the San Juan Islands or in the northern Puget Sound, we need a separate rescue tug because it takes six hours for the Barber Foss, the tug out at Nia Bay, to get into the San Juan Islands, the area where uh, the orca whale are living uh, a lot of the time. And um, what we know from the Exxon, uh, from the, um, Exxon Valdez spill up in Alaska is that one oil spill could wipe out all of these whales. So we're doing tremendous things looking at salmon recovery, looking at dam removal issues, looking at hatchery issues for increased food production, and so on. We're looking at removing toxins. All of those efforts would be a moot point if we have one oil spill. With the Exxon Valdez, we lost more than half of one pod and another pod is virtually extinct because all of the reproductive females were wiped out or died soon after the spill up there. So the two pods that were in the sound the day of the Exxon Valdez were either dramatically impacted or made pretty much extinct. And so what we know is we can't afford that sort of risk. So this issue of oil spills has to be a priority. It has to be something that the legislature gets done this next session. So we should come in in January and we should implement a task force recommendation, which would be twofold. One, to have a rescue tug in the eastern straits of Juan de Fuca, and two, to have escort tugs for any barge the same way we do for the oil tankers. The other thing on oil that I didn't mention, which is really, really important, is the Trump administration right now is proposing a, 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 a opening of offshore oil and gas development off the coast of Washington state, which is insane. We have such a pristine and sensitive environment off of the coast of Washington state. The idea of opening the outer continental shelf for oil and gas exploration is absolutely unacceptable. So I am proposing that we put forward legislation that would permanently block offshore oil and gas development, not just in our state waters, but in federal waters. And we have the means to do it. So I believe the task force also needs to put that forward because an offshore oil rig disaster like we saw with the BP Gulf spill would also wipe out these whales. We know that they go in and out of the Straits of Juan de Fuca actually in a more frequent basis now because they're searching for food than even they used to. And so if they went out the Straits of Juan de Fuca and we had rigs out there and one of them had a disaster like we saw in the Gulf, we would wipe out the entire population. So we must act on offshore oil and gas development and make sure we block it permanently in our state waters and our federal waters. The fish issue is just seems to be more complex. We know, of course, that these whales are not getting enough to eat and that that also probably has to be a number one priority, just like what you're talking about. When you hear folks talking about salmon recovery, what do you think are the wins and losses that you so far have witnessed. We hear all the time, take down the dams or get rid of seals and sea lions or move the boats. And it's hard sometimes to know who has the truth in their pocket and who, what is the silver bullet if there is one. What do you think about all that? Well, there is no one silver bullet. And anybody who says there is, is committing malpractice. 
And I don't say that lightly. You know, there's some, uh, there's a couple scientists who I really respect who I've worked with for decades who know a lot about this issue who have recently said that if we just take down the Snake River dams, everything's fixed and we shouldn't even be talking about vessels or about toxics or anything else. That is malpractice. If you're a scientist and you're saying that that's the one silver bullet and we shouldn't do anything else, uh, it's shameful. What we need to do is we need to deal with toxins, we need to deal with salmon, and we need to deal with vessels. And so on the salmon issue, we definitely need to have a very bold conversation about the dams. We need to be willing to question whether or not the Snake River Dam should be there. And frankly, some of the rivers, some of the dams on the Skagit and elsewhere, we need to have those discussions and really look at the data. And then and had, and be willing to consider removal of those dams. That it, not doing so is is also a malpractice. Not doing so is also us being negligent. So everything has to be on the table. At the same time, even if we remove the Snake River dams tomorrow, we're not going to have millions more salmon in the Salish Sea tomorrow. There would, as we know from the Elwha and also from the Matillaha Dam down in California that was removed you see a rebound of salmon stocks far faster than any, any scientist had predicted, particularly in the Elwha. I mean, within a year, we started seeing salmon going up that river. So there's an incredible opportunity there. At the same time, however, there needs to be a conversation about hatchery production. Uh, so one of the recommendations in my letter is that we do a 50 to 80% increase in Chinook hatchery production in watersheds where it will not impact wild salmon runs. And so we know that in some areas, uh, dramatic increases in hatchery fish will actually impact the wild fish. We don't want to do that. Um, but what we do want to do is get more fish out there. So there's more fish for the whales, and then there's also more fish for our recreational fishermen and our commercial fishermen and our tribal fishermen. Um, a lot of people want fish. And so what we've got to do is make sure that there's enough for the whales and then there's enough for everybody else as well. And so an immediate step we can take is a dramatic increase in hatchery production, which will actually make a difference. But again, we've got to talk about those dams. We also, however, have to talk about the food that the salmon eat. We are allowing uh, day-in, day-out impacts to forage fish habitat. And we know that forage fish represent 70 to 80% of the food source for salmon. And so just the way salmon represent, Chinook salmon represent 90% of the food source for our southern resident orca whales, these little surf smelt, sand lance, and herring that we call forage fish, they represent the majority food source for the salmon. And they have disappeared at, in staggering rates across the Puget Sound. And one of the reasons why is their habitat has, has, has disappeared at a staggering rate. We have lost countless thousands and thousands of acres of eelgrass. We have lost thousands and thousands of feet of shoreline for where surfs mountain sandland spawn. So the herring, they spawn offshore in the eelgrass. They lay their eggs in the eelgrass. So in very shallow water, anywhere from two feet deep to 10 or 20 feet deep, right? Surfs mountain sandlands, we only realized in the last 15, 20 years, these guys are like grunion. They go up on the sand, and usually at night. They come up on the beach and they lay their eggs and go back to the water. Uh, and they do this on sandy, gravelly beaches, usually with overhanging vegetation, so trees hanging over and such. The same sorts of beaches where property owners often come in and want to build a bulkhead or want to clear-cut that shoreline. Well, we've had a no-net-loss designation of forage fish habitat in law for some time. 
and we're not paying attention to the existing laws. And even when we do, the penalties aren't severe enough. There was a situation up here in the San Juan Islands where some folks decided that they wanted to clear-cut their shoreline and do some armoring and some other things, and they wiped out hundreds of feet of critical habitat. And they were doing a multi-million dollar development. They got a $10,000 fine. So it's a slap on the wrist. The other thing is the contractor, the person who actually did the work for them, who should know what is right and wrong, they get no penalty. So one of my recommendations and one of the things I propose in this letter is that on those forage fish habitats, we need to have a much stricter penalty for the property owner, the person who wants to do the work, but also on the contractor. So the people need to know what's right and wrong. And my, my suggestion is that on the contractor, at first there would be a penalty, but the second time they lose their license. Because if you are a repeat offender and you're a repeat violator breaking the law and ruining this habitat, you're out. And so I think we need to get strict and we need to get serious there as well. So there's a number of things that we need to do to restore salmon, and some of them will have uh, benefits sooner than later. All of them will have benefits, however. And so we need to do all of it, and we need to do it now, but we need to recognize that the immediate benefits from this stuff won't be seen uh, in many cases uh, for months or even years. There has been some mounting frustration. We heard some of it over the weekend at these public meetings focused at the government and the government's handling of these whales, which have been having issues for decades. And a lot of this is not new. That frustration and skepticism now also pointing at the task force. Some people saying this is just going to be a lot of talk and no action. Too many different stakeholders with too many vested private interests. Is anyone really going to do what it takes? You even expressed some frustration on your Facebook page when J50 died that we have to act boldly and we have to act faster. What would you say to the critics who are sort of sitting back attending these meetings and wondering, is this going to work? I didn't come here to rest. I, um, uh, uh, I believe that this task force will act. And I, one of the reasons why is because, you know, we witnessed a mother with her morning calf, uh, with her morning, uh, morning the death of her calf, uh, pushing her for hundreds and hundreds of miles. Uh, we just lost J50. I think people recognize what many of us have been saying for a long time, which is we are witnessing extinction. These whales are at or already below carrying capacity, which means that there are not enough reproductive males and females in the population to sustain the population. And extinction is not an option. So we must all step up and be bold. And if we are not, then the public needs to take us to task and frankly rake us across the coals because inaction is not an option. And so... Uh, if I have anything to do with this, which I do, I will make sure that this legislature is moving forward with bold actions. And I can tell you that many of my colleagues on both sides of the aisle are saying the same thing. People are really deeply impacted by what's happened this summer. And it's a shame, uh, and it's shameful that it has taken us this long. I worked on a report that I sent to the full task force a couple months ago that um, – I worked on in 2001, and at that point in time, we were freaking out because the population was down to 78, and everybody was really terrified that the number was so low, and that was, you know, 15, 18 years ago now, and uh, at that point in time, 
this report that was written for San Juan County had many of the same recommendations by some of the same people uh, that we're discussing now. And what I said in my cover email when I forwarded this report to the full task force a couple months ago was, I feel like I've been having the same conversation with the same people about the same actions for 20 years. You know, at this point, why should anybody believe that it's going to work this time if you feel like you've been having the same conversation? Because things are different. I will tell you that nine years ago when I first got elected to the Senate, the very first meeting I had was I pulled together all the top scientists on orca whales and said, "What what should we be doing to save these whales? And at that point, the scientists told me, we need another $10 million to study it. And I threw my arms in the air literally and walked out of the room. I was so pissed off. Uh, but what's different now is those same scientists are, uh, have tears in their eyes. They're, they're saying, you know, we have got to act. And so enough with studying things, enough with, uh, you know, having more conversation. It is time to act. And I believe what is different this time, and I have hope and, and faith that this is true, is that more people are awake. So just like, you know, millions of people have been protesting in the streets about all sorts of issues from, you know, women's health to immigrants issues to so on. People have been protesting in the streets about environmental protection in general. And people have been protesting in the streets and really uh, up in arms about this issue with our southern resident whales and not just here in Washington state. I'm getting phone calls, emails and contacts from people all over the all over the globe. And so what is different this time is more people are awake and more people are paying attention. And I believe that they will scream and demand action. Uh, and so I think that uh, I, I recognize that. The governor recognizes that. He, he had the foresight to put this task force up and say, give us a very short period of time, said, you know, between now and this fall, this is last spring, between now and the fall, you will come up with recommendations uh, for actions that the governor and the legislature will move upon. Um, this winter. And so this January, you are going to see legislation to protect these orca whales. Uh, What is in it um, is yet to be determined. But I think some of these issues we're talking about, from having some whale sanctuaries off the west side of San Juan Island, wouldn't it be great if these whales every once in a while got to cross a line and no boats followed them? How wonderful would it be if they got to uh, live in silence for a little bit and just hunt hunt salmon and communicate with each other? how great would it be if there were more fish out there? How great would it be if there were less toxins out there? These are all things that we must act upon. And the other thing we need to recognize is this isn't just good for the whales. This is good for the entire Salish Sea, which is also really good for us. Look at the economy that is based on a healthy marine environment. We know that recreational, uh, 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 outdoor recreation in Washington State alone represents $21.6 billion in annual spending directly supporting 199,000 jobs. So if, if, if we look at that economy, if we look at the maritime economy, if we look at other economies, all of these economies depend upon a healthy marine ecosystem. Even shipping, if there's an oil spill, the streets of Juan de Fuca would be shut down for days. That's like shutting down I-5. It costs us billions of dollars. So we need to be proactive and not just protecting these whales, but taking actions that protect them as well as our economy. Could you talk a little bit about your thoughts on boat noise and whale watching and recreational boats? Because I think that's also a hot topic for the public, and I'd just like to hear your thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. So there's some folks running around saying that whale watching is the problem. Let me be perfectly clear. I 100% disagree with that. I think that... You know, that, there's that sense of awe that you see in a little kid's eyes when they see a whale for the first time. And for the rest of their life, they are committed to conservation. 
they are totally committed to doing anything they can to save these whales. And most of those experiences happen on commercial whale watching boats. And a majority of the commercial whale watching boats are really out in front trying to do the right thing. Um, there are some bad actors in the fleet, and those bad actors need to be kicked out, frankly. But a majority of the whale watchers that I've gone out with and that I know are, are trying to do it right. So uh, that said, uh, that there's also a big problem with recreational boaters. A lot of the recreational boaters just don't know better, or they uh, just get so excited they just want to be closer and closer to a whale. And so I've gone out numerous times with our Department of Fish and Wildlife and in my own boat just to watch vessel behavior on a regular basis, you know, staying back half a mile or a mile from the fleet and just watching. And uh, more often than not, unfortunately, it's these recreational boaters that are the biggest problem. And like I said, some of the commercial operators are a problem as well. Most are not. Uh, and so I think, however, we need to get a hold of this. Right now, it's, you don't need a license to be a commercial whale watch operator in Washington State. You need a license to be a commercial operator to take people out on your boat. But there's no specific license for whale watching. I think we should create a limited entry permit system for commercial whale watch operators so that there aren't dozens and dozens of commercial boats out there, that it's, it's limited. Uh, and we set it up in a way that works uh, so that we can still have the educational value of whale watching, but we limit the number of commercial boats that are out there. I further believe, however, going back to my previous point, that the wreck boaters are often more of the problem. We need recreational uh, licenses. So the same way you get a fishing license, you go out and you get your – if you want to go salmon fishing in Washington State, it doesn't matter where you're from. You have to get a fishing license from Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. We should do a license for whale watching. And it should be you know, no more than 10 bucks. There should be some sort of grace period, like 15 minutes or something, in case you're transecting an area and there happens to be whales. You're not necessarily whale watching. You may get to see a beautiful whale, but you're really trying to get on to where you're going. But if you're sitting there whale watching, you should have a license. And part of that license is some education to teach you what you should and should not do when you're on the water as a recreational boater so that you're not part of the problem. The other thing is I believe we need some sanctuaries. We need to have some areas that are no-go zones for commercial or recreational whale watching. Um, and these are areas where, you know, you could very easily delineate these, uh, you know, they'd be on a chart. This is an area. So our enforcement officers would know if you're inside or outside of that area. So it's easier to enforce. The other issue, though, the bigger issue is that it's a real benefit for the whales and the ecosystem at large, where you have an area where just no boats go. So what that would impact, that would impact the commercial whale watch operators and also the recreational boats, but not just the recreational boats that are uh, whale watching, but you You'd have to also limit the recreational fishing boats, too. And so we have to be really sensitive about where we put these areas so that it's a benefit for the orca whales, but it also doesn't disproportionately impact some of our bigger recreational fishing areas. Um, but all of these things need to be on the table. And so what we know is that the vessel noise is an impact, and that impact is very real. These, these whales, they, they hunt and they communicate through echolocation, which means it's like a sonar burst, right, between the different animals. Well, they're doing that, and if they constantly have boats around them, it's very hard for them to hear each other, and it's very hard for them to hunt. The other issue is if there are boats constantly in front of them, if any of your listeners are fishermen, imagine this. If every time you cast, right where your fly landed, a boat zooms back and forth, there'd be no fish going to your fly. They'd all be scared away. Well, these whales, they have the boats 200, 400 yards in front of them all day long. 
And so when are they ever going to get a fish? So some of these actions like these we could take now, and they would actually have a benefit now. So while I don't believe that whale watching is the problem, I do believe that sound pollution and vessel harassment is a problem. And so there are ways that we can limit it. There are ways we can manage it. The other recommendation that the subcommittee suggested for next year, which I think is is not appropriate, is that um, we have one recommendation to expand the buffer from 200 yards to 400 yards. I think that needs to be done immediately as part of the uh, the legislative action this this January. Years ago, the Department of Fish and Wildlife had its uh, a separate dedicated marine enforcement division, and that was a really good thing because then you had water officers who day in, day out were working on the water. They understood the vessel behavior. They understood the whale behavior. They really got a grasp of what it meant to enforce marine rules and laws instead of just, you know, enforcing a wolf issue or something else, right? Uh, a few years back, that was disbanded. And now we have we have officers who spend a lot of time on the water, but there's not a dedicated marine enforcement division. So I'm proposing that we uh, stand up a marine enforcement division within Fish and Wildlife so that we day in, day out, have the same officers working on the water so they know the boaters. They know they have relationships with these people who are on the water a lot. But more importantly, they know the whales and they know the environment. It takes a while to get up to speed on these issues, and we shouldn't be rotating officers through. All right, so final question for people who say, other than, to use your words, raking you through the coals if you don't act, what can we do those of us who are just your average washingtonian that love the whales what can we do whoever your representative is whoever your state senator or uh, or state representative is you need to contact their offices you need to let them know that you deeply care about this issue you also need to let the governor know um the the, the best way to keep a politician's feet to the fire is to make sure that they know what you care about too often, uh, people get really angry, and then they don't send a letter. They don't send an email. They don't call. You need to do all of the above, and you need to do it regularly um, so that we don't get down to Olympia and have 50 other priorities and forget about this one. All right, there you have it. On the record, Senator Kevin Ranker giving everyone permission to drive politicians crazy. <laughs> <laughs> My colleagues are going to be dead. Okay. Well, we certainly appreciate your time today. Thanks for your uh thoughts on all of this and for participating in the process. It's all very important to all of us and we are glad to know that it's a passion of yours. Thank you very much for having me on today and uh, thanks to all your listeners for getting engaged and making sure we do our job.